Good morning on Bell Tower Sunday. I uh, just gave you a couple of quick remarks that fit the occasion. Three people were the ones who made the Bell Tower and the Bell possible. One was a Washington newspaper man, another was a lawyer turned Episcopal priest, and the third was a president of the United States. Joseph Gales was a co-editor of the major Washington newspaper of the day, the National Intelligencer. He was the only pew owner at St. John's Church who showed up for a July 1820 meeting expressly called to decide whether or not to expand the church building. His unanimous vote of one authorized the building, and that's the result. As it, that picture was done in July of 1821. It's a sketch done by the French uh, minister's wife from the top of uh, the Decatur House. Um, the, other, the second person involved was Joseph Gales. <clears throat> After him was Reverend Holly, who was the rector of the church at the time, and who was a lawyer by practice who later became Episcopal priest. He asked President James Monroe if he, he would authorize some public funds to help St. John's purchase a bell. Rector Hawley skillfully noted in his August 1822 letter to President Monroe that such public funding had recently been provided to another church to purchase its bell on the grounds that it would be a fire alarm for the U.S. Postal Service who was next to the, next to the church. Hawley emphasized in his letter to President Monroe that a bell in St. John's would be even more valuable as a fire alarm given its location so close to major public buildings, including the White House. President James Monroe authorized $100 of public funds of the $400 needed to purchase St. John's bell. The Revere Foundry of Boston sold a 964-pound bell to St. John's, which was installed in the bell tower on November 30th, 1822, 200 years ago last month. Our speaker, uh, uh, Nina Zanieri, will be able to tell us about Paul Revere, the founder of the company that produced our bell. Nina has been the executive director of the Paul Revere Memorial Association in Boston since 1986. Previously, she was curator at the Rhode Island Historical Society. She has served leadership positions for professional museum associations, including vice chair of the American Alliance of Museums, President of the New England Museum Association, Council Member of the American Association for State and Local History, Member of the Advisory Committee for Museum Studies Program at Harvard, and the Public History Program at Suffolk. She has offered se several publications dealing with issues related to historic house museums. She received the New England Museum Association Lifetime Achievement Award in 2015. She holds a BA in History from Boston College, and an MA in Anthropology Museum Studies from Brown University. Welcome to St. John's, Nina. Good morning. Good morning. I'm at the point where to read I have to take my glasses off. Now, of course, I can't see any of you, but that's all right. You're all lovely. Lovely. Um, I must begin by saying that it is a, a deep honor to be uh, in this deeply sacred and historic place. We all understand the power of place and its value. I'm here today speaking about Paul Revere is, in fact, testimony to his legacy. 
In this instance, in the guise of the bell cast by his son, Joseph Warren Revere, as you noted 200 years ago. So whether they're judged heroes, scoundrels, or a little of both, the lives of legendary historic figures undergo a constant process of reinvention as the present consciously and unconsciously reshapes the past, sometimes to allow for a more complete picture, at other times for purely ideological purposes. In her 1942 Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Paul Revere, Esther Forbes acknowledged most American heroes of the revolutionary period are by now two men, the actual man in the romantic image. Some are even three, the actual man, the image, and the debunked remains. In Revere's case, his life has taken on mythic qualities due to the romanticized image of the Midnight Rider, which obscures his real accomplishments along with his shortcomings. Most people have a sense of Revere as a dashing Midnight Rider, patriot, and silversmith. However, Revere was many things, a responsible family man, innovative craftsman, mediocre soldier, enterprising businessman, dedicated Freemason, a proud self-promoter, opportunist, and risk-taker, a public-spirit public citizen, and a man who suffered disappointment and loss. Paul Revere was born in December of 1734 in the north end of Boston, one of 12 children of Deborah Hitchborn and Apollos Revoir, and the oldest surviving son. He received his limited formal education by attending the North Riding School. Paul Revere also had a large family, eight children with his first wife, Sarah, and eight with his second wife, Rachel. Much is made of Revere's large family without placing it in the context of its day or noting the great interest, concern, and feeling he had for each of his children. When one of his children contracted smallpox, he would not let the child be taken to a pest house and preferred to risk his livelihood by having the entire family quarantined for the better part of a month. And we can appreciate that now. In 1778, in a letter proclaiming his affection for his wife, Rachel, he calls his children, my little lambs. In 1786, he wrote to his cousin, since my last letter, I have lost one of the finest little boys ever born, two years and three months, named John for you. This from a man who had already buried a young wife and several of his children. He cared for their education, for his first set of children, this meant home training, homeschooling and training as artisans. For the second set, it meant schooling for both the boys and the girls, and ultimately a Harvard-educated son, John, who went on to medical school in Scotland and became a doctor. While Paul Revere had a varied business career, silversmithing, his earliest and most enduring pursuit, was the cornerstone of his professional career for 40 years. After the Midnight Ride, I would guess that the best image of Paul Revere, the best known one, is the Copley painting that shows him as a craftsman. Revere learned the trade from his father, a French Huguenot who came to, the, to America at the age of 13 and apprenticed with an English silversmith, John Coney. Though overshadowed by his more famous son, the father had considerable talent and left his son a valuable trade, a well-equipped shop, a customer base, and quote unquote, a good name. This one business would support Paul Revere's family 
and provide the capital for other ventures. Revere proved to be an innovative craftsman, and he passed the trade of silversmithing on to his brother, his sons, and some cousins. Revere's public life was extensive. He served one year in the French and Indian War, as most young men of the time did. He was active in the pre-war agitation, which eventually precipitated the American Revolution as a member of several political clubs and often used his skills as an engraver and silversmith for things like the well-known Liberty, Liberty Bowl and the Boston Massacre engraving. During this period of revolutionary agitation, demand for fine silver, of course, declined. People weren't drinking tea. So he turned to other trades. He dabbled in dentistry, commercial engraving, and he also worked as a trusted courier, carrying news from Boston to New York and Philadelphia. Nine rides, in fact, uh, all of which he was paid for. His work also included the famous ride. His assignment was to get to Lexington to warn John Hancock and Samuel Adams to get out of town. Um, that was his assignment, which he completed. The events of that night would probably turn, have turned out the same if Paul Revere had never left Boston, because the system was designed not to be dependent on the success of a single lone rider. He served as an officer of the Massachusetts Train of Artillery. He was involved in the failed expedition of Penobscot, Maine, the worst naval disaster of the American Revolution, of course. Um, it was a very complicated um, event. He was charged with cowardice and insubordination, dismissed from the service, and then fought for and was exonerated via a court-martial. After the war, Revere wasted little time getting back to the business of his businesses. His silver shop would grow and flourish and produce wonderful pieces, many in many art museums today. More and more, he left the day-to-day -day activities in the hands of his son, Paul. Quote, my dependence for a living will chiefly depend on the goldsmith business, which will be carried out by my son under my inspection, always under his inspection. In 1783, Revere was able to make a move from artisan to merchant. He used a successful silver business to finance an ultimately unsuccessful hardware store, uh, which ran until 1789. He opened a foundry in 1787, which produced iron products, cannon, and ultimately bells. His first foray in bell making came in 1792 at the behest of his own church, the New Brick Church. They noted, quote, it appears our bell is injured and will soon become useless. They formed a committee, which interestingly in included Paul Revere. They considered getting a bell from England, but then took Revere up on his offer to cast a new bell. Interestingly enough, he didn't know how to cast bells when he agreed to make the bell. So he went to his friend, Aaron Hobart, who instructed him on proper methods. This was his first bell, also the first bell cast in Boston, though not his best, as the bell's tone was considered harsh. It was certainly not his last. A thousand, in fact, made by the company. The large bell he cast for King's Chapel in 1816, 2,500 pounds, considered one of his best, would interestingly, the bell that would toll to announce his own death. In 1801, at the age of 65, motivated by patriotism and profit, Revere began the, began the final, most risky, 
but actually most successful venture of his life by converting an old gunpowder mill on the banks of the Neponset River in Canton, Massachusetts into a copper mill. He was the first American to successfully roll copper. In 1802, he wrote that he was doing tolerably well, that his mill in the country, where I roll sheets of copper and make bolts and spikes, I and my sons are the only persons in America who can do this business. So again, he was not shy about promoting his abilities. He produced copper for the USS Constitution, the Massachusetts State House Dome, and interestingly, for copper boilers for Robert Fulton's steamships. His son, Joseph Warren Revere, was ultimately involved in this process, spending much of his time going to England to learn the tricks of the trade. In 1804, he signed a formal partnership agreement with Joseph Warren Revere. However, we know he stayed involved until his death. At some point after 1807, the Bell operation moved from the Lynn Street foundry to Canton. So undoubtedly, your Bell was born in Canton, but shipped back to Boston to be finished and then moved on. So it's both a Canton and a Boston Bell. He continued his lifelong affiliation with Freemasonry. He was an active member and frequent office holder of many lodges and rose to the level of Grand Master of the Massachusetts Grand Lodge. These affiliations brought him great networks. They fueled his revolutionary ideals, brought him customers, friendships, and awakened his philanthropy. Later in life, when he could, he supported philanthropic ventures such as the Charitable Fire Society. He was president from 1795 to 98 of the Boston Mechanic Association. Though he never attained a major elective office, something that bruised his ego deeply, nor was he encouraged to seek elective office. He did serve as Suffolk County Coroner from 1795 to 1802, and that was an appointment from Governor Samuel Adams, and he was president of the Boston Board of Health from 1799 to 1800. In 1811, Revere retired, leaving the businesses to his sons. At that time, he said, in my last stage, how blessed I am. In 1813, he lost his dear wife, Rachel, and eldest son, Paul. He died in 1818 at the age of 83. The son of an immigrant artisan not born to wealth or inheritance, Revere died a moderately well-to-do man whose contemporaries remembered him in this way, a prosperous North End mechanic, quietly but energetically pushing his business interests. He had an organizing brain, great judgment, courage, a determined will, unfailing energy, and remarkable executive ability. He was a born leader of the people, and his influence was pervading especially among the mechanics and working men of Boston. His obituary read, such was Colonel Paul Revere, cool in thought, ardent in action. In the early scenes of our revolutionary action, his country found him one of her most zealous and active sons. Seldom has a tomb closed upon a life so honorable and useful. So with all that Paul Revere did that was noteworthy, how is it that the ride has become such a dominant part of how he is remembered? How is it that he is well known, but not known well at all? David Hackett Fisher would call it shared American memory. True enough. However, 
With the stroke of a pen, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Paul Revere's Ride created the single most enduring image of Revere, a larger-than-life figure racing around the countryside crying an alarm in the night. Revere was transformed in that moment from being a minor historical figure of some local note and maybe national regard to a national folk hero. Interestingly, it's never been that the facts of the event were unknown or that the real story of the ride is dull or in need of embellishment. So why did, Revere, why did Longfellow ignore existing accounts? Actually, three written by Revere himself, two depositions in 1775, and perhaps the most famous account in 1798 at the behest of Jeremy Belknap, the corresponding secretary of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Revere's letter begins, having a little leisure, I wish to fulfill my promise of giving you some facts and anecdotes prior to the Battle of Lexington, which I do not remember having seen in any history of the American Revolution, meaning no one had mentioned him. Um, <clears throat> he then goes on to give a very full account. A version of that account was published as part of a biography of Revere in 1834 in the New England Magazine, a periodical we know that Longfellow owned. So the main source of the confusion around Revere is that it was a good poem, a great poem, that captured the, American, the imagination of generations of Americans. Revere's words are persistently evocative and literally unforgettable. Ask any child who had to memorize it. For his part, Longfellow did just what he set out to do, write a dramatic poem with a romantic setting in a time of unrest. Longfellow's poem was first published in late 1860, then again in 1861 in the Atlantic Monthly. It's no coincidence the poem was written on the eve of the Civil War. It was indeed a call to arms for the North. Individual action was needed and would make a difference. Longfellow didn't record his exact reasons for writing the poem. However, he was an ardent abolitionist and had a romantic interest in the revolution. That the poem has been the source of most of the misconceptions widely held concerning the ride and Revere's own role, and by extension Revere's proper place in history, is more the fault of Longfellow's audiences than his author. We're the ones who confuse dramatic poetry with historical documentation. Also, history is many things, but it is not pure science. It rarely provides a complete set of immutable facts, <clears throat> and so it becomes a matter of interpretation. This confusion has affected the memory of many of our remembered historical events, the Alamo, the first Thanksgiving, and I would argue things that have happened more recently. It happens because we use history to justify actions, to make points, and to support political views. We blur Fact, fiction and fact, and then think it is truth. Interestingly, when people discover that the poem is not accurate, they somehow blame Revere. In the process, some delicious ironies have been created. Indeed, for every, in, every generation that has immersed itself in a love affair with the colonial past and Revere, there are an equal number of times when the past fails in the light of progress, good fortune, and a real distaste for heroes. This creates a need to pull Revere down off of his pedestal. P. 
People want some hidden dirt, some evil deed, something we've suppressed. He was, of course, a drunk, a coward, an egomaniac, and of course he didn't finish the ride, none of which is true, but most of which is believed. It's quite telling that even though there were three portraits done of Revere from life, all by good artists, the most common image of Revere is the dashing rider on horseback. They look nothing like the slightly round 41-year-old. He's rather more dashing, younger and trimmer, certainly how we all would like to be remembered. For others, Revere was a self-publicist and somehow is responsible for his own after-the-fact fame. And in fact, some people think he paid to have the poem written. Interestingly, um, Revere was not shy about mentioning other people when he wrote his accounts. Just for the record, Longfellow was 11 years old when Revere died, and the poem was written 42 years after his death, so it would have been hard for him to pay for it. It's even more ironic when you think of the Longfellow-Revere connection, because that Penobscot disaster, well, General Wadsworth, who was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's grandfather, was a commander of that event and he and Revere did not get along. So how is it that this man who Peleg Wadsworth did not care for is somehow elevated by his grandson to great fame? Did he dandle young Henry on his knee and say, you know, Paul Revere, I done him wrong? Or is it just an irony of history? I will also note that for many, including Charles Francis Adams of the Adams family. He indicated his displeasure for Revere by saying that it was an absurd, the poem was an absurd inflation of Paul Revere's reputation. So not all the Adamses loved Paul Revere. So while the memory of the man is fraught with contradictions, the enduring value of the name Revere and the Midnight Ride imagery have been used both for their connection to Revere's initial risk-taking, his work as an artisan, and by extension as an indicator of high quality, reliability, and ingenuity, and speed, Paul Revere Pizza. <laughs> These qualities were used by many companies, by many politicians, and a history lessons to heighten Revere's enduring popularity as a fixture in American history, public culture, popular culture, and marketing. Would Revere have been famous without the poem? The poem, certainly locally. His other accomplishments, all those wonderful pieces of silver, his engravings, the Boston Massacre engraving, his work in copper. Uh, in the War of 1812, it would have been hard to buy copper from England had Revere not been producing it. So our warships were quite dependent on that copper. And of course, bells. All of those make him deserving of recognition. In 1835, in his book, Boston and the Boston Legend, Lucius Beebe argued, quote, immortality did not come to Paul Revere posthumously, as some would believe through the galloping tropes of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's heroic poem, he is one of the first citizens of Boston during his lifetime and an artisan of distinction and high in the circle of patriots. He was no waif or stray of history brought into being through the casual agency of verse. So what does this all mean? Perhaps 
that in every myth, there's a bit of truth. For the legend creates a history that might have been from a history that never was, and in so doing, obscures the history that actually happened. So I leave you all with an assignment, particularly at a time when history is used poorly, I would argue, by almost every politician. The assignment is, question all legends lovingly, accept that all heroes have flaws. Understand that history is complex and has rough edges. Demand that history be plausible and iterative, but always believe that history has value and if used wisely, can help us all be better. If you come to Boston, please visit the Paul Revere House. We'd love to have you. Come and discover even more about the man, the myth, his home, and his North End neighborhood. Thank you. Uh, the answer to the latter, I believe, is no on the Carolines. I can tell you that, and um, I actually brought a copy for your library. Um, Ed and Evelyn Stickney um, spent 50 years uh, touching every revere they could touch. Um, and when Ed and Evelyn passed away, when, when, right before Ed died, he approached us to take their archives. Um, Sadly, no other organization would take them, and we said absolutely. So we acquired the copyright to their book, which includes your bell and the bells that are considered official Revere bells. Um, there are 146 extant, um, and they are all over. They're as far away as Singapore. In fact, the bell in Singapore, uh, Paul Revere's uh, daughter, Maria, married a man by the name of Belestier, who was the consul to Singapore. So she moved to Singapore, and she asked her brother, Joseph Warren Revere, to make a bell um, and send it to Singapore um, as a gift. And so there is still a Revere bell in the museum in, in Singapore. So, and this, this book is for your archives, but it's available online if you're interested. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the first bell not being one of his best. Is there any criteria other than sound that determines a fine bell? And do we know if we have a fine bell? Well, uh, um, I think you should judge the tone uh, yourself. If you think it's a sweet tone, then it's a fine bell. Uh, bells do crack. Um, there is a very uh, lengthy description that would come, sort of like the warranty sheet, um, to say, if you don't ring it properly, you will damage it. Um, and Joseph Warren Revere would say that even a small rope tapped against the side of a bell could, could crack it, whether that's true or not. Um, bells are meant to uh, 
roll against the clapper, a clapper being uh, stationary and the bells roll against them rather than people wanging the, the clapper against it, which can cause damage. If they're used to, to strike clocks, it's a small hammer on the side of the bell rather than inside. Um, I think it's bell makers also protecting themselves against the liability of a cracked bell, like the Liberty Bell. Um, many bells would, would wear out. Again, the comment, our bell is injured and may not last long. They can be recast, um, melted down and recast, and that happened with some bells. Um, so I would say if you like how your bell sounds, I know the one, we had a anniversary program on the 200th anniversary of Revere's death, and we asked a number of churches that had Revere bells to strike them at, at noon. And one was King's Chapel, and we were in the granary, and we just had a big ceremony with you know muskets firing. And at noon, everyone became very quiet, and you could hear the bell. And to stand and hear the bell that told Revere's death on the 200th anniversary of his death. If you're a history geek, you just get chills. It just, it does something to your soul, which is, which is good. For some reason, I thought Paul Revere cast the Liberty Bell. He Who did not. Cast the Liberty Bell? I don't know. What did you say? Stolen pass. Stolen pass. A stolen, stolen he says stolen past? Stone, two words, stone and past. See, that's why you have a, a, a good historian. <laughs> yeah. we, we, we have a, a bell that's in our courtyard, and I can't tell you the number of times someone's went, the Liberty Bell, the Liberty Bell, the Liberty Bell, to which we say, no, a better bell, a better bell. <laughs> Any last one? Yeah. Yes. What, what more can you tell us about Joseph? Well, Joseph ends up being really the one who carries on the legacy. Um, he runs the business. He runs the copper mill. He married late, um, and he had a number of children who then were being groomed to take over the copper business, primarily jo uh, Paul Joseph Revere. Um, the tragedy for Paul Joseph Revere and his brother Edward H. R. Revere is that they die in the Civil War. Paul Joseph and Edward H. R. were both Harvard grads. Uh, Edward H. R. was a surgeon, died at Antietam on the battlefield uh, trying to save someone's life. Uh, Paul Joseph died on the second day, uh, on the 2nd of July at Gettysburg. Um, there was some suspicion he might have been killed by shrapnel from a Revere cannon, which would have been the height of irony, but we think that is not the case. He dies. He's the one who was supposed to come back and run the business. Um, so uh, Joseph Warren Revere, when his two sons were leaving for the war, begged them, begged them not to go because he wanted the business to continue. And they both said, it would be humiliating for us not to go. So in some ways the Revere family lost more in the Civil War because Joseph Warren Revere was elderly. The only son left to run the business was John, who in the uh, book about the business said, John, he was a very nice man, but not a very smart businessman. So he was really the least able to take over the business. Uh, but Joseph Warren Revere had a, had a long life, 
lots of children who then uh, were the children who carry on both the legacy of the copper business to some extent and also the legacy of Paul Revere. With the copper company, were there ever any artifacts made out of copper as there were silver pieces? Yes, not during Revere's lifetime, but after the fact, especially in the um, 1930s, um, there was a, a decorative arts, number of decorative arts pieces that were created out of Revere silver that show up in a number of, uh, Revere copper that show up in a number of collections. And the Revere Copper Company, um, it survives through Joseph Warren Revere's tenure. Um, and it is involved in a number of mergers, Taunton Copper and Brass and Revere Merge, um, and they changed the name to American Copper and Brass and then decided that was not as good as Revere Copper, so they go back to Revere Copper. It falls out of family hands eventually. The copper mill um, ran in Canton under the Revere name until 1906 and then uh, stopped. Uh, there were other mills around. There was one in New Bedford and the surviving Revere Copper Company is in uh, Rome, New York. And interestingly enough, it, it went from being certainly a family-owned business to corporation, and now it's family owned again, but not by the Revere's, but by the O'Shaughnessy family. Uh, and one of Tom sits on our board, and it's a, it's a great relationship. So we have a good relationship with the company. But they did, and also Revere wear, copper bottoms on, on, on pots. But that's a 1930s piece again. It's not Paul Revere saying, boy, wouldn't that be a great marketing thing? Um, I will tell you that our our late board president, Paul Revere Jr., um, his father worked for Revere Copper as an employee, and he swore he would not ever work there. He told me this story, and he said, but they called me, and they said, you must come work for us. He thought about it, and he said, gee, you know, if I'm going to be a salesman for Revere Copper, and I walk into someone's office and say, hi, I'm Paul Revere. I'm here to sell you Revere Copper. Who's going to say no? Who's going to say no to that? So he worked for them for many years as, as a salesman and enjoyed it immensely. He would, he would come to the site and walk up to school kids and say, do you know who I am? And they'd be like, I don't know, some old guy. I don't know. I'm Paul Revere. And they go, you are? So we've had fun with it. Other questions? Could you tell us more about his death and burial, and also did Paul Revere Jr. bear a resemblance to the Paul Revere? Interestingly, to the last question, yes. Um, in fact, we have a number of, the Copley painting, you know, he's like this. Um, we have a number of photographs of various Revere's, Paul Revere's, of which there are many, um, uh, doing this. Round face, very much. So Paul Revere Jr., who, as I say, passed away, his daughter Avery is our board president now. Uh, her brother, Paul Revere III, um, is in the wings. P4, there, his son is in the wings. So we have Revere's lined up to, um, uh, to uh, 
help run the association. It's not required by bylaw, but as I've always said, if there's a revere that's ready, willing, and able, it's a great thing for us. Um, to his death, uh, he was very hale and hearty. Um, he seemed not to be troubled by almost any ailments. There's no record of that. Um, although when his wife and son, well, eldest son died in 1813, you would think that that might have caused him to not go on much longer, but he went on another five years. Um, he died of old age. Um, he died in Boston. He always had a home in Boston, even though he also had a home out at the Canton property, which he considered sort of his gentleman's estate. It was really a very small house out there, but I think he liked to be out there poking his nose into the business, watching his sons. Um, and so he died of, as I say, just old age. There was no other record of any long illness. Um, he did not, one of the other puzzles about him is he did not have a Masonic funeral, which one would expect from a prominent Mason grandmaster. Um, there was a little bit of a dust up amongst the Masons in Boston around uh, 1800. And there seemed to be some bad blood, some money that maybe went the wrong direction or something was taken. It was never really clear because the gentlemanly Masons would not talk a great deal about what it was. But I think he had a falling out and therefore did not ask for um, or receive a Masonic funeral. Which, But the Masons today love him dearly. Um, he is, um, you know, revered. I will say that, and that's, of course he is, Nina. Um, but he's, he's, his memory is kept by many of the lodges, and in fact, the Lodge of St. Andrew still uses one of his ladles uh, to serve their punch. Masons love punch, I must say. It's always a very important part of it. With that, everyone, please join me in thanking you.